The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalms chapter 96. Psalms chapter 96. Psalm 96, it just, even as I read it, I don't know about you, but as I read it over and over, every time I read it and think about it, I just get happier. I get excited about not only what's now happening, but what is to come. The psalmist writes this, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. For he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you, God, for your word. And I thank you for this particular psalm, this word that you have recorded for us for all of eternity, a word that we pray would speak to us tonight, would challenge us, would move us, would motivate us, um, would just draw us even further, higher, deeper into your presence and awareness of who you are and how much glory you truly have. And may we respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take you back to a moment for David. For David, this was the moment he had thought about for years. From the time that he had been anointed king, he had thought about, I believe, this day, this moment, when eventually he was not only crowned king and he united all of the tribes and he took the, the capital of Jerusalem as his own, as a new city that would be the pinnacle city, the capital city, the chief city for this new nation that God was establishing there in strength. And there was a a day that he had dreamed about. It was a time when he had planned. And at first, it didn't go very well. At first, this day was an absolute disaster. At first, there was tragic consequences and results because they took it too lightly. Though he was excited, he didn't really think through all that he was doing. But this was the day. And on this day, the, the pathways from the villages were lined with crowds of people. And they were singing. They were shouting. They were dancing. The priests were were clanging their cymbals. The priests were taking deep breaths and blowing on the shofar and sacrifices were made. And at the procession of this event was the king himself singing and worshiping and dancing with all of his might. The day I'm talking about was the day when, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God's presence from where it had been on the outskirts, away from God's people, there in the capital. 
that, that physical, tangible symbol of God's presence, God's desire to dwell amongst his people. A reason I bring that up, because David records in 1 Chronicles 16, a song, a very elaborate psalm that celebrates that day. And the reason I bring it up, because Psalm 96 contains much of what David wrote on that day. Very same verses, very same declarations, the very same invitations. Now, we're not sure if David, in fact, wrote Psalm 96. Many think he did. If not, the psalmist borrowed much from that psalm because he was inspired. Because what took place on that day was a national celebration. But what Psalm 96 gives to us is something far bigger. Because it's not simply relegated to a certain place or a certain people. But what we read about tonight is an invitation for, listen, all the nations. For all the nations of all time, and really not just the nations, but all of creation, we hear the language of the fields and the forest singing and rejoicing. There's this invitation to experience what David and the people of Israel experienced on that glorious day. And it's not hard for us to imagine the, the overflowing emotion that they must have felt. Listen, that was just a sneak peek. That was a glimpse. That was a partial unveiling of what is to come. And really, Psalm 96 is inviting us to something so much bigger. We, excuse me. We've been looking through the book of Psalms, and we've called this series Heart Cries. And really what we've seen is that the Psalms give us, they give us language. They give us language and ability to express our emotions. They give us the ability to show and to sing and to tell our deepest longings. They allow us to tell our story, but more than that, listen, they allow us, they give language to tell the story. Because it's not simply emotion. There's great truth, there's great doctrine. They tell us the story. And I was thinking about it this week, and I'm sure I'm not the first person ever to think about this, but it just struck me anew how literally the book of Psalms is located where in our Bibles? Right in the middle. I've known this since I was a kid, but there was just something that, I don't know, spoke to my heart about that, that literally in the very center of the Bible is God's hymn book. It's God's instruction on how to sing and how to pray and how to come into his presence. In a sense, you could almost say it's the kind of the core. It's kind of the hinge. And I thought that's so fitting for the life of the believer. It should be the core of who we are, the hinge on what so many other things do in our life as a desire to come into his presence to sing and to worship and to glory in who God is. It's the hymn book, not the H-Y-M-N classic hymn book. It really is him, H-I-M, because it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. And tonight we end, and I think one of the, the happiest psalms, and there's a lot of them, but this is one happy psalm. It's a psalm full of joy. It's a psalm full of celebration. But in the midst of it, there's something that I, I thought about. Because really, it's looking forward. It's, it's really full of high notes. But I, I realized something. Something struck me. As we are celebrating and invited to sing this, there was this awareness. The world is not like this. The reason we celebrate is because it's this longing of what we want to be. And in the middle of that, it's this kind of awareness. Yeah, it's nothing like this right now. Now, there's great hope because we know it's going to be this way. But really, what I want to share tonight is we know it's not this way, but Psalm 96 gives us the means, if we'll listen, if we'll, if we'll respond, to actually get to the world, to get to the life that we desire, that God has created for us. 
not only one day when he comes and rules and reigns, but really to experience this life, I believe in part, every day of our lives, as that's what it's calling us to, something we do every single day. Three simple things. If you see the outline in your notes or on your device, I couldn't have made it any simpler. Three things that Psalm 96 calls us to do. Number one, see. Number two, sing. And number three, say. So later on, you're going to ask, what was this about? See, sing, and say. Very simple. So what are we called to do? We're called to see something, to respond to something. As I mentioned, Psalm 96 is a happy psalm. It's astonishingly happy from beginning to end. And we are exhorted to do not just something, we're actually exhorted to do several things. If you look at it, and some of you uh, English students, you realize there's a lot of verbs here. There's a lot of things that are being told for us to do, to sing, declare, ascribe, worship, say, tell. There's a lot of things that we are saying these to do. There's a lot of actions for us. And what I want to say to us tonight is a few things. Number one, these are not suggestions. As we read through this, this is like, hey, if you think about it, do this. No, this is like, no, do this. But it's not just actions. I I would say this, what we're called to do are are to have reactions. What do I mean by that is what we're called to do, what the psalm is all about is really reacting to something, to someone. Every one of these actions are in response to encountering the glory of God to understanding who this God is that we serve, when we understand how great a salvation that he has purchased for us, when we understand these things, we respond, we act, we have to sing, we have to ascribe, we have to say, we have to tell, we have to do all these things. And so first and foremost, before we do anything, we're invited to see and understand the goodness of God, the power of God, specifically the glory of God. And what we're invited to do is really to align, listen, as 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 people, we are invited to align ourselves with the rest of creation. Because the rest of creation really knows what it means to glory in God and to glorify God. Many months ago, we talked about Psalm 19, where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The end of the psalm is inviting us to sing like the forest will sing, like the fields will sing. And when you look around, you realize creation, which groans, which we'll talk about later, really creation is so much more obedient than humanity. They understand their creator. They long to worship their creator. They're longing and groaning, it says, for the day of redemption. I read this from uh, George Whitfield. I came across it reading this week. And George Whitfield was a, a great evangelist from over 150 years ago, a couple hundred years ago, really, the first great awakening. And he said something as he was talking about us humans. He was talking about us always wanting to be in control, to be our own masters. And he said this. He realized nature, rocks, trees, and animals understand the glory of God better than we do. He said, quote, do you know why when you get near them, the birds fly away, the animals hiss and roar, and they growl at you? I thought it was interesting. He said this, it's because they know that you have a quarrel with their master. Never thought about that before. I was like, oh, they're threatened or all this. But when he said that, I was like, wow. They understand that we humans have a quarrel with their master. Of course, it's a bit rhetorical, but not far off. Like I mentioned, Psalm 19. And what Psalm 96 is calling us is to see, to understand, to revel in, to experience, and to respond to the glory of God, to see the very thing we so often fail to see, that we were meant for, we were made for God's presence and the glory of God, to reflect his goodness, to reflect his glory. In the middle of the Psalm, there's this, they're pointing out that What we so often do is we follow after and worship all kinds of other things. 
He says they, you worship the other gods. They're, they're false gods. They are worthless idols. And the Bible says this, and many of us know as we've heard it, if you've been in church for any length of time, listen, you and I, we are pre-wired in our very DNA, in our very core, whether you realize it or not. Maybe you're here tonight, you're saying, I'm an atheist. Listen, you are pre-wired to worship. You will worship. You're saying, I don't worship anything. Oh, no, you will worship. And every pastor, eventually, I know, will quote Bob Dylan. He says, you're going to serve somebody. <laughs> you will serve somebody. You are serving something. And you're saying, no, I don't. Well, ask yourself, what do you, what do you give all your time and attention to? In your, in your moments of free time, when you're just left by yourself, what is it or who is it that you're constantly daydreaming about? Where do you give all your time, your money, your resources? Listen, you could fill in the blank. If you have this blank, it makes life worth living. And maybe you think about it a little bit further. If you were to lose this or never have this, it would absolutely crush you and devastate you. Not just hurt, not just depressed. But I'm talking, you're unable to get back up. You're unable to move forward. Drill down on a little bit and you'll understand who you worship or what you worship, that you'll realize that you may not have a, a god or an idol named Aphrodite or, or Zeus or anything like that. We roll our eyes, but oh, you've got a, something, I'm sure, that you're worshiping unless you've come to the place where you realize, no, the only person worth worshiping is the one true God. Amen. See, all those other things, what the psalmist tells us is they're lacking something that will ultimately devastate us if we worship them. They're lacking glory. Because the God that we serve and worship is a God of glory. Now, what do I mean by that? What does this Bible talk, what's it saying to us? There's a lot that that means, but the glory is the expression of all that God is. When Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And God proclaims his name. But literally here, the word glory is the Hebrew word kabod or kavod. It means weight. It literally means the weight, the weight of God's presence, the weight of who he is. It's God's supreme and importance, his expression, the God who is without beginning or end, who depends on nothing. Listen, and everything and everyone else depends on him. Everything else in comparison to him is chaff. It's fluff. There's no substance. He alone has weight. He alone has the ability to hold your life together. He alone has the ability to, to, to hold on to, to, to be someone to hold on to in the midst of the storm's anchor to. Everything else is fluff, smoke, vapor. It's weightlessness. Chaff, like the psalmist says, wood, hay, and stubble. And so often we're giving our hearts to so many different things, listen, that eventually will be taken away. I came across this this week, and I know I quote a lot, kind of a nerd, but I talk about Lord of the Rings a lot. Forgive me or not. I don't care. I'm still going to watch it. But, but we love Lord of the Rings. We love The Hobbit. And there's something about it. I, I, I've always been a little bit perplexed, I'll be honest. And if you know anything about it, and if not, forgive me, bear with me for a moment. But there's this evil, dark Lord named Sauron. And it's all about this ring, this ring of power. And if he can get the ring. And one of the things that kind of perplexed me was like all of this power tied up in this little ring. And I wasn't the only person I found out who had the same problem with this. In fact, there was a critic who wrote to Tolkien. And she said this. She said, quote, here you have this great evil supernatural being, this great dark lord, and he has this unassailable power. He has enormous armies. He has fortresses. He has all this supernatural power, but he also has this little ring. And when this little tiny ring of power is thrown in the fires of Mount Doom, everything melts down. 
She says, quote, even for a fairy tale, that doesn't work. That's just too much. It doesn't really hold together. Tolkien wrote her back and said this, which I think is a really great answer. He said, quote, the ring of Sauron is only one of the various many mythical treatments of the place scene, listen, of one's life or power in some external object, which is thus exposed to capture or destruction with disastrous results to oneself. Basically, he wrote that in there showing like how we attach ourselves to things and people, and eventually those things will be taken and our lives are turned to nothing. So simply a, a picture, a metaphor in the narrative that shows how all of us are so prone to attach something, our, ourselves to something that inevitably, if it's not God, will be gone and will be destroyed. You see, we ascribe glory to too many things, too many things, and they have no weight. There's no real anchor whether we realize it or not, there's a lot of little rings of power, whether it's relationship, it's a, a career, it's a, it's a zip code, it's a house, it's a second house, it's a boat, it's this or that or the other. I don't know what it might be. And those can be good things, but if they become ultimate things, oh man, watch out. That's what the psalm is talking about. But we're called to see, to experience, to understand the glory of God, but more than that. And here we move into some really good news. That's great news, but there's even more. It kind of builds in some excitement because we're called to see it, and that's really what everything is built upon. We're responding to, but what are we called to do is we're called specifically to worship, but in a way to sing. It says this in the beginning, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Later on, it talks about singing. It says even verse 12, the forest one day, they, the forest itself will sing. The trees, they will sing. So it's not enough to simply see, but we must sing. How do we prevent the things in our life from becoming rings? <laughs> we sing. It's what we sing about and who we sing to. And the psalm is telling us what we're made for is to worship, but specifically we are made not just to worship in general, and worship is many things, but there's something very powerful about singing. That God has given us the gift and he calls us to sing because he knows there's something that happens. One, he's worthy of it, but there's something powerful that happens in our lives. Yes. And so the Psalms constantly are calling us not just to worship. There's so many places that we're called to worship, but specifically to sing, to give voice. When it talks about here, the, the singing, it talks about one day the trees clapping their hands. One day the tree's singing. I don't think it's simply metaphorical. Oh, I think that's, there's a metaphor in that, but I think it's kind of literal. Absolutely. I think there is coming a day when that, in fact, will happen. Isaiah 55 says this, you will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Amen. I think all these things we see in movies and, and novels, they give us glimpses, but ultimately one day this yes. will happen. Yes. And singing is one of the greatest ways to make sure the glory of God, listen, the glory of God is not simply a theoretical thing. Right. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just a mental thing, but it's an experienced thing because singing does something where it takes the truth of God, the doctrines of God, and mixes it with faith. It mixes it with emotion and it becomes a delight. It's about the heart. Music and singing has a way because that's the way God made it. It has a way to affect you on all levels. Amen intellectually, of course, emotionally, certainly, and even physically. Yes. The life of a believer should be a life filled with singing. Oh, Ephesians 5 says, be filled with the Spirit. And then it says, if you're filled with the Spirit, what will you do? You'll sing psalms, yes. 
and hymns and spiritual songs. There'll be melody in your heart. So the evidence that God is at work in your life, that the Holy Spirit is in you and overflowing you, the first thing that we're told is that you're going to sing. You'll live a life of worship, but specifically, you will live a life of constant singing. Why does God command it? And I want to say this, if whether you knew it or not, singing is the second most commanded discipline in the Bible. The number one commanded spiritual discipline is prayer. Number two is singing. We are constantly called and commanded to sing, to enter into his presence with singing, to sing to the Lord a new song. Why? Because God knows, one, he, 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 he is worthy of it, but number two, we're made for it. And there's something powerful, there's something unique that singing has the ability to do in our lives. Like I said, it unites the mind and the heart, doctrine and delight. It involves our whole body, at least if you're doing it right. And the reason I'm sharing this is because some of you are like, yeah, I don't really like to sing. Let me challenge some of you tonight. Oh, you were meant for it. And if you're not stepping into singing, you're missing out. And you're never going to become the person that God ultimately wants you to be that you can be if you really hold back. Because the Psalms, if you read the Psalms, you see singing is mentioned throughout. And, and to really sing involves your mind because you're informed about what you're singing. It's not just singing whatever. You're singing about the salvation and the deeds of God. In the Old Testament, oftentimes it was singing about the Exodus and God's great works of deliverance. In the New Testament, it was about the gospel and all that Jesus had done. It's what you're singing. So you're engaging the mind. But in the Psalms, you also see that, man, the, your physical body was involved. We're, we're told to clap our hands. We're told to lift up our eyes, to bow our knees, to give a shout of praise. We see dancing. Listen, to really sing isn't I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. And what time is this guy going to be done tonight? I got to get out of here. No, to really sing. And sometimes you wonder, man, why do those Christians raise their hand and say, well, the Bible tells you for one, but there's something about when you really begin to sing, you realize, man, you can't just go, well, I'll give, I'll give some expression through my lungs, passing through my vocal cords on my lips. No, that's great, but there's something more. Eventually, like David, you, you, you worship, you sing. And to sing like the forest will sing, the trees will sing, man, sometimes it involves clapping your hands. It involves raising your hands, lifting your eyes, bowing your knee, humbling yourself in his presence. Listen, to sing, man, something gets inside of you. When you read about the revivals in history, when God moves in unusual ways, there are certain things that are always noted. Prayer, preaching, and singing. Not too long ago, Within the last year, we, we were having a worship night, and we're going to have one of those again soon. We, we need it. Woo. But one of those worship nights, I showed a clip from a, a video, a documentary about the Hebrides revival. And there was this line I remember one of the older guys said, and I don't know how old he was. He had been around a while. And it was like tears in his eyes. And he said something about revivals that you could tell it when they were singing. There's something different about revivals singing. And he said, when they sang, you could tell. When he heard certain people sing, he said, oh, they've been in revival. Because something happens when God touches your heart, when you encounter the glory of God, the presence of God. You have to sing. And you, you sing differently. You're like, wow, I'm going to sing. Because this is what I was made for. Songs get inside. That's just, that's just the way God made it. When my kids were younger, Annie would help them memorize things by putting them to song, right? <laughs> little ditties, little melodies, it gets inside of you. It works its way in your mind and your heart. You have a way of memorizing it. I've got this dumb ability that you give me a word, and I can usually come up with a song. You know, you think rainbow. 
Somewhere with a rainbow. Ice. I say the word ice. What do you think of? Vanilla ice, maybe? Okay. That's a... Useless ability, you know? Hammer. I think of MC Hammer. I mean, just, I, I don't know what, my mind can always associate a song with any really dumb random word. I can always come up with it, but listen, for all of us, there's something more powerful when we think of certain words like amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And I can say it, which is powerful, but then you know what that's like when you begin to sing it, something happens. That God saved a wretch like me. A word like slave, but then you think, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. I remember when I first sang that song because it was the truth of God's word. That's what God's word declares. And I remember singing that. I was like, whoa, something happened. I remember going through a season of anxiety and just uncertainty, and that song came on. I was like, wow, that's what scripture tells me. I am God's child. I am told over and over not to fear. I will no longer fear because God has set me free. I think you hear what I'm saying. This is why the psalm is saying, sing. We're invited, exhorted to do something that is good for us, that is right for us. And what I want to say tonight is it's always sad to me. I'm not mad. I'm always a bit sad when I see people every week. And I'm not judging. I'm just, I'm just sharing my heart. When I see people rolling in, you know, 20, 30 minutes late and, okay, they're just getting here in time for the message. And every once in a while, that might be something going on. And listen, I'm never judging, but I'm always just sad when I see that continually in somebody's life because here's why. I just know they're missing out. They're missing out on, again, what we're supposed to do to give to God, but we're also, that person, they're missing out on what God wants to do in their life. Amen. There's transformation that happens when we sing. Amen. It's because that's how God has made us. There's something powerful that happens. There's things that break off. There's a garment of praise that is exchanged when there's a spirit of heaviness. There's these things that happen when we do what God tells us to do. And if we're ever going to truly build our lives on the glory of God, we must sing about God's glory, not just in general, but again, what we sing in the Old Testament, they sang about the Exodus, they sang about God's deliverance. David sang about his deliverance many, many times. Of course, I mentioned uh, in the Gospels, there's so many things that we can sing about. And that's why it says here to begin, sing a new song. And I don't think that's one or two new songs. I was thinking about this. There's always going to be a new song to sing. Because there's always things that God, uh, there's always things that God's doing in our lives. There's always new things that God is doing. In fact, I, I Googled, I, know I, got, I, I just had this little thought. I wonder how many songs mathematically you can actually put together. I don't know why I thought, is there a limited number of songs? And I'm going to trust that the answer I found on Google was accurate. It wasn't on Wikipedia, it was on Quora, so we'll see. But mathematically, there's several people, and they all kind of came up with a very similar answer. But one person who seemed to be the smartest did the math. And he said, mathematically, there are 82 and one half sextillion, which means there's a whole bunch of zeros after this number. Possible 10-note melodies, but the answer is much larger than six common number written above, as there are definitely songs that have the same melody. However, how the songwriter and artist, band, conductor, solo artist, etc., how they incorporate the melody into a performable or recordable work only increases the possible total number of songs that can be created. And it pushes the number into something that is basically telling us there's an infinite number of possibilities. When I think not only in this life, but in the life to come, there's always going to be new songs. You know what that's like when there's a brand new worship song? You're like, I love that song. And eventually it's like oceans. You never want to hear it again. But you know, when that new song comes on, you know, like never play that song again. It was awesome. Like seven years ago. And I played it every day for six months and I don't ever want to hear it again. But there's a new song. You know what that's like? Oh. And you're like, you guys tell the worship, sing that song, sing that song. There's like, it's like a new song. 
because it's a spirit-inspired song, because it tells us more of who God is and what he's done. And I always love those new songs. And I was just thinking, man, there's always going to be a new song. There's always going to be another song. And what I want to say to us tonight, what the psalmist is inviting us to do is to sing. He's inviting not just, not just the people of God, but literally saying to the nation, sing, rejoice, delight in this great and glorious God. The call to sing is not optional. This is what we do. And that's why in humility and in love, but in obedience, when, when they started putting orders out, well, you can't sing and this and that. Like, listen, we know there's a real virus, but at some point we go, no, this is what, this is what it means to practice our faith. Amen. And we'll do it responsibly. We'll do it this, but at the end of the day, no, we love God. He's too important. And, and we'll do precautions, but we're going to sing Amen. because this is what we're meant to do. That this is who God is, and he is worthy of our worship. Amen. He's worthy of our songs. And so we see, amen, and we sing, yes. And the last thing this is calling us to do is not only to see, to sing, but to say, because verse 10 says this in response, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. This is a great missionary psalm. It's a call to missions. It's a call to declare, not just to the people of Israel, like 1 Chronicles 16 was about, but Psalm 96 is not just simply to Israelites, but it's to the Gentiles, it's to all the nations, to all of creation, to sing, to worship, to come and experience this God. Many, many years ago in Bible college, in my uh, Book of Acts class, we were given a book called Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. And it was all about missions, and it was one of those books that just rocks your world. In fact, Annie and I were having a conversation, and she remembered that book too. And there was one particular sentence, I don't remember all of it, but there was one particular sentence that summarized the book and really changed my perspective on, on missions. It added a different dimension and layer. And he said this, John Piper, missions exist because worship doesn't. You see, I always thought of missionary work and missions primarily to go seeking to save the lost, which it is. But it added a whole different dimension is that missions exist because worship doesn't, that there's places and people in the world who have not yet worshiped God, and he's worthy of worship. Amen. He goes on to say, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go, because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus. And we want all the families of the earth to be included. Hallelujah. Psalm 22, 27 in your notes says this, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship yes. before you. Yes. Listen, seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. What that means is as we worship, as we encounter the goodness of God, there's something that happens where we're motivated to tell others. You can't contain it. Listen, you can't commend something to somebody else if you don't cherish it first. You can't proclaim what you don't prize, but the more you prize and the more you praise, you must proclaim. What we praise, we have to proclaim, we have to share, we have to say. I think this is probably not the best analogy to compare, but I'll, I'll go with this. When I really am into something, like if I find a new restaurant and I just love it. Like, I don't care what it is. It's like, uh, I had Spam for the first time. This is really weird. I've never eaten Spam in my life. Now you're like, what? where are you going? But I was at this Thai food place and they had this Spam fried rice thing. I said, I'm going to try this. And it was amazing. 
It had onions and green onions, and I don't know what else they put in it. And I thought, I don't know why. I just felt like, who on spam? But I hate this thing. Now, here's, the, here, here's my whole point. I want to tell all of you, you should go eat this thing. It was so good. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, when you try something that you really like, what do you do? You go to your friends, taste this, try this, right? Like, you, you want to share it. When you really experience something powerful, you can't keep it to yourself. If you do, you're just selfish, you know? Like, if you found the cure to cancer, or if you found the cure to COVID, you would tell everybody, right? And so when we worship the Lord, when we really sing, we realize, man, this is what my heart is meant for. I found something weighty, the ultimate weight. I am anchored to something, to someone that gives my life purpose and meaning. And when I sing and worship, I encounter his presence, his goodness. I have to share this. I have to go tell people about this. I can't keep this to myself. I have to invite. That's what worship does. Worship says, Here's the motivation to do it. Here's the me- and it's also the means. As we sing, we're, we are sharing, we're declaring, we're speaking and inviting others to participate. But man, there's such a motivation to do it. Last thing, and I close with this, is there's something particular about this call to the nations and the way the psalm ends. And I just had a thought because it's a discussion I've had many times throughout the years and even recently in light of events and Sometimes Christians get accused of being a little too excited about the end times. Oh, man, you're excited about judgment. You're excited. man. You're twisted. You're sadistic. No, not at all. Some people are. You're like, dude, calm down. You're a little weird about that. There's, you, know, you know what I'm talking about, those people. Like, no, there's, some, there's a sobriety about it. But listen, for us as believers, what does it say here? Verse 11, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, yes. and he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. There's a joy that the psalmist is describing that God is coming, and he's coming to judge. And for the psalmist and for every true child of God, this is something that we should be excited about. Not all that's going to happen, but the very fact that the righteous judge is going to come. Hallelujah. The righteous judge will, in fact, be here. Why is that something that brings great joy? Because in a world of corruption, and in the time when the psalmist wrote, and we see it now when when judges can be paid off, when politicians are corrupt, and justice is really not served, there's coming a day when the judge who is holy and right and fair and good will judge. Our hearts cry out, yes, may it be so. May it be so. May there be real justice from somebody who is righteous and pure and good who will judge fairly. I was having a conversation with a, a new friend this week, and he's involved in uh, military, or excuse me, police operations and, and rescuing people out of sex trafficking. He was telling me some stories. Eventually, I had to say, I, I can't hear anymore because my heart was breaking, and more than that, I was getting angry. Yeah. As he told me these things of what people are capable of and what people are subjected to, I was furious because I was, this is not right. Somebody needs to do something about this. And at some point, I had to repent, Lord, forgive me my thoughts of the things I want to do to these people. I was just so angry. I don't know about you, if you ever watched some of those movies like Schindler's List, or I recently watched a movie on the life of Harriet Tubman, and all these, you watch these things, and I don't know about you, but I get angry at times, like, this is not right, somebody must do something about this. Listen, there is going to be a day when all those things will be made right. And as, the, as believers, that's why we sing, is we know all these things, eventually all those things will be made right. Everything that is unfair will be made fair. Everything that is gone wrong will be made right. The world around, we look around, we say, it's not supposed to be this way. You're right, it's not. That's right. But someday it will be made right. 
That's why we groan along with creation. Romans 8 says, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Listen, we groan, all of creation groans. We are longing for the day of our redemption when he comes back, when the king rules and reigns. Creation is longing. Creation is groaning. Years ago, I heard a, a sermon by Dr. David Jeremiah, and it always stuck with me. And he was talking about Romans 8 and groaning. And he said this, and I couldn't find it, so I'll trust his word. But there are those who have recorded the sounds that nature makes, and all the sounds that nature makes are minor chords or minor notes. And if you know anything about music, you have the major chords and the minor chords. And when you play a minor chord, it always kind of just goes, oh, you know, it's, it's kind of. And all of creation is groaning. They're, they're making minor notes. They're making minor chords because they're longing for the king. They're longing for its day of redemption. But guys, there's coming a day. And I'll close with this. There's coming a day when the, the trees, rocks, angels, all of humanity will cry out. There's coming a day when Revelation says, we will sing, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, king of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's the song of the Lamb we will all sing in. But here's the thing, and I'll close with this. We don't have to wait until that day. Psalm 96 is getting us excited for that day, but listen, that day can be experienced in a, in a way now. It can be experienced every day when we decide, I'm going to sing. No matter what's going on, I'm going to sing and I'm going to worship. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to rejoice in God's presence, and I'm going to be so overwhelmed with the goodness of God that, that I can't contain it, right. that I have to tell others about it, right. that I have to see, I have to sing, and I have to say. I have to speak. I have to share. I have to praise, and I have to proclaim. Sing to the one, listen, who was judged, who's coming to judge. But for you and I, that one that we sing to, ultimately, we know the gospel says he was judged in our place. He was the one who laid aside his glory that we might be those who partake of his glory, who see his glory. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.